This is the Untamed Ethos Podcast. Join us as investment pros, executives, and other experts talk business, personal growth, investing, politics, and the trending topics well-rounded pros need to know about. Authentic, unfiltered, and fun. Joshua Wilson is the founder of United Ethos Wealth Partners, a registered investment advisor. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of United Ethos's investment advice on this podcast, and nothing you'll hear on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. All opinions expressed by Joshua and by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of United Ethos or its affiliates. Welcome back to another episode of Untamed Ethos. I'm Joshua Wilson. And with me, as usual, is Dr. Vix, Russell Rhodes. And Russell's been talking to us a lot of, over the last few weeks about uh, the big picture in the market, right? He's been, mm-hmm. he's not seen a lot of headwind for the NASDAQ. In fact, he's felt pretty good about it. And uh, your, your wisdom has proved sage over the last few weeks, Russell. The NASDAQ was up about 3.5% last week. And I believe it's about 6, about 6% over the last 30 days. So obviously, I think a lot of us are thinking, you know, do you, do, you, do you see that this thing has continued room to run? That's something we'll talk about today. Uh, is it running out of steam? And what about this in the context of the other indexes? Because we continue to, although the Russell um, uh, 2000, which is you know the small caps, has recovered a bit, looked a little better recently, it's still far behind the SP, SP 500 um, you know, SPX up about 9% year to date versus the Russell only up about 1%. Um, and, you know, and the Russell traditionally, or at least recent years, has not looked very good as a summer investment. And yet we're seeing this big divergence. Is, is that divergence likely to continue? Uh, Will the large caps continue to dominate? You know, as we talked about before, you know, la- last year, everybody was telling us that this was the year for the small caps. And so far, so far, uh, they're going to need to play some catch up if that's if that's to be the case. So lots of good stuff to talk about today. Big picture. I know you were at a conference last week and picked up some interesting uh, thoughts on um, you know on the debt ceiling and uh, the, the 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 current role of private equity and how the how they're experiencing the markets. And um, so we'll get into some of those things today. But uh, before we just jump in, you know, Russell. What's uh, what else is on your mind today? What else should we get into? I just uh, you know we've got we this this coming week we've got an an inflation reading that has always uh, you know always been a little little add a little extra volatility to the market, but goodness knows it's much more of a focus these days. Uh, like you said, uh, you know how the how the small cap stocks have just not had a good twenty twenty three. They uh, they've definitely been lagging a bit. Uh, and you know that that's and and you know Nasdaq Nasdaq's up over twenty six percent this year. Is it I, that? Yeah. Wow. Is, yeah. yeah. No, I was, I was like, so focused on well, just the last few weeks because that's when we've been talking a lot you know, about this last few weeks that the podcast hasn't been going very long. But twenty six percent year to day, I, it hadn't even dawned on me. My goodness. Yeah. And um, I I uh, I started the year thinking Nasdaq, you know, it was time for it to do some catching up, but uh, you know. That, that it's it's very much of a focused performance. It's like over half the performance of the NASDAQ or a big portion of the NASDAQ is coming from five or six stocks. Right. Which again are the large cap stocks because they have a bigger impact on uh, the you know capitalization weighted index than the rest of the stocks. I also read a <laughs> read a pretty interesting statistic in Barron's this weekend. The market cap of Apple 
is greater than the market cap of the Russell 2000. Wow. Yeah, you almost spit the milk out your nose on that one, man. Yeah, that, the market cap incredible. of Russell 2000 is less than, it, it's, you know, two, well, Apple is a $2 trillion company. And I just, I read in Barron's that, um, that just in, in passing, but I love when you hear stats like that, that currently the Russell 2000 market capitalization is less than the biggest company in the U.S. Biggest company in the world. I mean, I, I feel like it was just, <laughs> you know, yesterday that it was a big deal. It passed one trillion. I didn't, I, know. I, hardly, I hardly heard a word about it passing two trillion, but one trillion was was big news. And that wasn't that many years ago that it no, was. No, it, it, it wasn't. And the stocks doubled since then. Uh, you know, one of the big arguments always for small cap stocks is uh, you've got to do an awful lot to move the needle on a trillion dollar company, maybe not as much on a $500 million company, but uh, they figured out how to move the needle at, at Apple quite nicely. They've also been buying back a lot of shares and, you know, doing some things with issuing bonds and using that money to buy back shares, which has got to have helped um, share price. But that still, you know, when you buy back shares, it gets subtracted from the market cap. So uh, shareholders that have held on have been extremely happy with that one. Yeah. And, you know, this this also kind of segues and we won't get into to this detail at this moment. But one of the things you mentioned to me that came up at the conference you were at this past week in Indianapolis was that the the 70 percent of the MSCI World Index is now in the U.S. It's I feel like it's been 50 percent for it's kind of what's stuck, stuck in my head, at least for, for a while. But how do we how do we get from 50 percent to 70 percent so quickly? And a lot of it's because of the, the, the large cap dominance. I think large cap dominance, uh, um, you know, it, it's we've had great performance in Europe as well. I focus in on the euro stocks and the V stocks. Euro stocks 50 is up 16 percent this year, um, which compares very nicely to the S&P 500, which is only up nine percent. But, you know, even though Europe's, European stocks have had a really good year, uh, we've just taken a bigger piece of the pie. Uh, I think a lot of, um, you know, emerging market companies have dramatically underperformed. And, and that's probably how we've ended up being a, a big part of the global index, I've, or global market capitalization. I mean, I've, I've always felt, you know, this makes me an ugly American, I guess, but I've always felt that you don't, you know, to get international diversification, uh, you can buy U.S. companies that have a big presence overseas. Right. If you take the S&P 500 and you, and you acted like it was a single company, uh, over half of their revenues come from outside the U.S. So is the S&P 500 a U.S. stock index or is it a global yeah, stock yeah. index? Yeah. And, and you know, many will say, too, that you know some of the smaller caps are more U.S. centric, which is interesting. You know, when you think about this in terms of so many conversations come down to not how if they get if they become too U.S. centric, then you get focused on how bad things are here or the negative news is coming out here. But it, it, in, in, in so many ways, it's not about the facts. It's about the relative facts. And how are you versus your competition in a global market if you are if your competition is overseas? And you're doing relatively well. Relatively well can 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 get you into the finals, right? I mean, this is you know, I, I grew up in a rural area, and uh, I remember uh, that the every year I would always qualify for state in uh, in track. 
<laughs> and then I make it to state and I get to have to run against all the guys that are going to play wide receiver and running back again, you know, at, at, <laughs> at Tennessee and Alabama and, and Auburn and, <laughs> and just get smoked because, because I qualified in that because it was about who the competition was. And so, you know, you can have a lot of headwinds, but at the end of the day, capital is going to go somewhere. And there's a, you know, that, that relative performance matters a lot and it can be lost when you get hyper-focused on, the details of a, of a, of a current market. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, you, you hear grumblings about trying to get away from a dollar centric world, but that's going to be very difficult to do. If you, if you're a professional investor, you know, you're going to have to continue you, you, We're we, you know, we're the best game in town for them. You know, we're probably the most secure game in town. Um, you know, we've, we have our issues. Uh, I don't, I, I've heard so much about the debt ceiling lately. I just, I, I don't even want to talk that much about it, but we continue to have our own issues, but so do other countries around the world. And luckily we're, we're so diversified as an, as a country and as an economy that, you know, we're just a safe place to invest and a great place to, you know, if you want to try and start a business, I can't really think of a different country in the world I would want to try and start a business in than here. You know, we argue argue about how unbusiness friendly re regulations are, especially in our industry, uh, where we all have our personal regulator. Greg is sitting right there, listening uh -huh. to everything I say and taking notes. Hi, Greg from NASDAQ. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's just you know. It, there's so many positives. They do outweigh the negatives. It just seems like we hear about the negatives a lot more than the positives. It's interesting from a from a portfolio management standpoint too, and you think about it because you know we do. Does one to what extent does one really need to get stocks outside of the United States um, if if so much of the index is here and so much of the revenue, or at least we're getting from the large caps, is from overseas. And then, you know, the, the mid caps and especially small caps, you know, have that kind of reputation of being more U.S. centric, uh, you know, and less less revenues coming from from abroad. Yet, if you were to, you know, play to that just from the headline of, well, these are more U.S. centric then you'd think, well, you you probably would want to have more of those if, if the United States is relatively if the United States is relatively strong. But that's not what we see. You know, I ended up seeing that they're the ones that are. Well, you know, if you look at the five factor model, you should be getting paid on this uh, over time. And it's just it's not held up, um, at least over the over the last you know decade or more. I don't know. I haven't looked at like, that deep that deep into it. But it's a story that, you know, companies like DFA, Dimensional Fund Advisors and others and then the smart beta folks continue to preach. But it it doesn't feel like that that's been the case that you're getting paid for this extra um, risk and, you know, it's kind of the, the, the kind of the, the argument that is there's no world where you wouldn't get paid more for the extra risk of, of these companies. And, and by the way, they're also more U S centric, which is the strongest market in the world. Why can't we get paid? So it, this, this global market and now the, um, you know, the the bigger talk probably in the macro space is deglobalization. So how is that going to affect us going forward? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'll, I, I got to stop making this conversation bigger, Russell, so we can actually talk about, <laughs> talk yeah. about something. But, you know, let's 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 kind of back up here. You know, one of the things I think that we that we want to get into today is, you know, the market itself. Where do you see it going? Where we'll 
do we do we do we have strength ahead of us right now, especially with the Nasdaq? Um, and then I'd like to kind of get into, you know, your you and I talk about derivatives a lot. We talk about options. We talk about the VIX and. I think that it's not always obvious to folks why we would talk about those things in the context of the stock market, because the derivatives market is is not the stock market, right? It's a different market. But we believe that this tells us something about what to expect about the stock market. We also believe that it confirms, um, which confirms or fails to confirm things that maybe maybe seeing in the stock market and therefore we use derivatives um, as a way to give us information about what to expect about the market so i think some of those things are pretty non-obvious it'd be nice to kind of dig into a little bit today yeah in in derivative pricing when you you know without getting into all the funky math and and yeah. all the things that people hated when they took yeah, it yeah no no math if, you, if you're about to yeah. tune out we'll just we'll, we'll nah, say no, no I'm math not going, i'm sort of going with math here <laughs> so you know let's say uh you got an auburn helmet behind you uh let's say auburn makes it to the uh bcs championship game and they're playing i don't know we'll put ohio state in there uh you're going to automatically believe in your heart of hearts that even if ohio state's better that auburn's going to win but if you really want to get a good read on, you know, the collective mind of sports fans, you take a look at the Vegas odds and you can convert derivative pricing the exact same way where you can take what, again, without getting into all the math, but you can, I can take option pricing on one of the big indexes and see if the market believes there's more risk or less risk in an inflation indicator than there has been over the past few reports and start to get an idea of what the market is actually focused on uh, based on the odds, based on market prices, not based on talking heads on CNBC. Yeah. And so, so let, and let me, let me add to this too, as well. The, when we, when we say the market, when Russell says the market in this context, he's not actually meaning the stocks. What is the stock doing? He's meaning the participants in the market, those who are actually making decisions on the market. So this becomes, this is why a lot of, when you, when you think of, um, you know, actually for both of our dissertations were really behavioral finance in nature, although they both take into consideration derivatives because the price of derivatives tells us something about people's psychology and how are they acting in the market? Now, when I use, uh, as, as I've given on this podcast before, my example of how I like to talk about, about uh, derivatives and options is they're like pub they are like publicly traded insurance contracts on stocks or, or indexes. And so it's like this. You know, um, I'm giving a, a, a parallel example. You, you use the example of Vegas odds. And I, I've used the example of flood insurance. And the more people believe the flood is coming, the higher the insurance price will be. If if I've if Russell's pitched me flood insurance today, I look outside, it's all sunny. And then he, I said, nah, I don't want that. Oh, only $50 a month. Are you sure you don't want it? No, I'm good. Next day I look outside, it's stormy. I look at the I look at the news, and the news says it's getting worse. I call Russell. I do want that insurance after all. He says, no, 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 the price is $1,000 a month now. And so as this, you know, as the expectation of risk 
And if I'm a market, if I'm a market participant and I expect more risk, then the price at which that thing is offered, supply and demand, will continue to go up. But at a certain point, that price will stop going up. Okay, so what is it signaling to me if I've seen the price, the demand, right? And more people interested in buying that. When, when people stop being interested at, at buying at a certain price, then the price will start to go down, right? So this is telling us when we're looking at the price of derivatives, the price of insurance on the market, it's telling us something about how market participants are viewing the risk in the market. Do they believe it's going up? Do they believe it's petering out and now starting to come down? Or are they very optimistic? Are they stop, are, have they stopped putting money in protection and starting now to put more money at risk? Are they adding risk to their portfolio or are they trying to reduce the risk in their portfolio, right? So all of these things are telling us something about not just the psychology, what someone's saying on a television show, but what they think but how are what is money actually doing? Where what 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 decisions are people actually putting money behind? Not just what they're saying on a radio show, but what what does the data collectively say about what market participants are act, are actually acting? And you know, VIX, my uh, one of my favorite indicators, is is really a good pure number to give you an idea about concerns within the marketplace. Uh, you talked about how you know that that. It reaches a point where folks are, are are not wanting to pay up for insurance anymore, and the and the price starts to come down a bit. Uh, sometimes that can be a function of uh, you know how expensive it has become, but also it can be a function of um, how many how many people already have their insurance. And 2022, uh, I'm going way off script on you here. Uh, 2022, uh, you know, VIX only got up to the low 30s even though we had a horrible year for equities. Well, you could see going into 2022, uh, lots of discussion around inflation, lots of discussion about interest rates going up, and lots of concerns about the equity markets. And VIX already elevated relative to the price action in the S&P 500 before it started to fall apart, before the stock started to fall apart. So when everybody already owns the insurance or everybody is braced for some sort of sell-off in the equity markets already, you don't see that rush to buy insurance and you don't see derivative pricing go up like, like you do when it's more of a surprise. And, and you know, that, uh, Steve Sears over at Barron's came up with a great name for VIX about 20 years or so ago, calling it the fear index. Uh, you, you know, like that, that phrase they have out there, frenemies, where your friends yeah. and enemies at the same time. Um, I would love to come up with a word that combines surprise and fear. Yeah. Yeah. Fear prize. I don't know. But part of it has to be there's an unexpected component to it. And if the, if if everybody's already expecting uh you know negative equity prices uh, and have positioned themselves accordingly, you're not going to quite you're not going to see the same reaction out of derivative pricing and subsequently uh VIX levels when the market starts to sell off. And then beyond that, uh, years ago, I was at a, uh, a risk management conference and the guy that ran the endowment for one of the really big, one of the big university endowments, uh, they have a consistent program where 
they put a, a percentage of their assets and they're guarding against a 5% plus drop in the S&P 500 on a consistent basis. And because he knows that, and he knows he's got that safety nut, he's willing to continuously buy stocks, even when the stock market doesn't feel all that great, because he knows what his downside is on that. So be, beyond the, uh, the supply and demand it, with derivatives, it, especially among those using them as risk management tools, uh, the, when, when you start to see VIX diverge or VIX do what, what people you know, think it shouldn't be doing, uh, such as you know, not going up a lot when the stock market's in a really bear market, uh, that that tend to just indicate that that there was more expectations around what ended up happening uh, relative to what you know people think should happen with derivative pricing on a sell-off. Yeah, I mean, it, it has something to do with how well prepared people felt like they were for what happened. If you're yeah. if you've already got your positions in place and you're already prepared, then you're unlikely to add to to make moves right now. So mm-hmm. that's the 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 the. F- the fear is kind of the preparedness. Yeah. And I would say, so when, when, when Russell says, you know, there's fear and surprise and they're kind of two elements and it's, it's almost like saying this is imperfect, but I think it's pretty close. Um, it, what portion, what proportion of the VIX is fear and what proportion of it is surprise. And so the surprise premium is kind of what comes up into place based on, Hey, this is not as we expected. Mm-hmm. But the fear is what is expected and is being paid for. I'm expecting this amount of volatility yeah. and therefore I'm preparing for this and I'm paying for this. And as fear is rising and more is being more protection is being bought, then you're going to see the price go up of the VIX. But then there's still that element of, well, is this is, is this appropriate? Is this prediction mm-hmm. actually appropriate? And then there's that, there's that still that surprise component that can come in at any given point, and that's really where the um, the opportunity, I guess, for outsized gains and why people speculate on the VIX is when one makes a VIX speculation on the on the VIX going up, they're basically saying that they believe that the market that, that there is a lot more surprise that's going to build be built into the market. This right that there's a lot more that that, that the market's wrong. That the, yeah. the the fear that the market is pricing in that the market is wrong. So when you're going long the VIX, um, you're saying I believe the market's wrong. I believe that overall that all this risk that we're pricing in is wrong that there's going to be a lot more that no one is pricing in. And so that's that's tough when you when you think about about trading the VIX because a lot of folks are kind of thinking about what's um, what's to be, what's to be expected. What's to be expected versus what's priced in. Yes, that's yeah. and and you know what that holds true with any trade that you do. It's uh, you've got and one of the things I try to teach my students, which they don't have a whole lot of experience trading, but I, I, I like to just emphasize that the way that you're really going to make money if you're trying to trade is taking positions and looking in places where other people aren't looking right now. Yeah. You know, and it's, uh, you know, just to circle back to the uh, small cap underperformance, people aren't looking at small caps right now. Um, They've been looking at, you know, a lot of people are paying attention to the NASDAQ 100. Uh, In fact, they saw excessive call buying on the NASDAQ 100 over the past few days in what appears to be a FOMO trade 
where everybody looks around, sees the NASDAQ up 26% and the other indexes up less than 10, one of them barely up, and they feel like they're missing out on something. So uh, one of the recent drivers behind uh, NASDAQ option volatility has been call buying, not necessarily put buying. And usually it's the put side of the equation that drives a lot of these things. Uh, but every once in a while, we and it usually it doesn't really happen with the S&P 500, but we've seen this with the Russell 2000 as well. Uh, and it that FOMO buying tends to come at the end of a trend. And Ooh, I think I think we're getting some foreshadowing. Yeah, come, come, come <laughs> and you know where I'm going with this one is Nasdaq. Thank you very much for my 25 percent or so this year. Um, I, I if it, I, I'm going to leave the rest of it on the table, and if other people want to be along the Nasdaq, go right ahead. But I think it's probably time. Uh, might be later than sooner. And that's not you know the way that you're normally supposed to say that. Uh, but um, I think it's time to give the the small caps some love. Uh, year to date, they've underperformed about eight and a half percent or so uh, since the year 2000. I think this is the second worst start to the year like that, and um, about 90 percent of the time. When the, when the Russell 2000 has underperformed the S&P 500 uh, in, at about this point in the year, uh, it ends up higher. Uh, it actually, there was one year where it underperformed by, goodness, I think 15, 20%, and it was up 50% from May through the end of the year. I'm not predicting that, but uh, if, if, you, if I got to be in stocks, I, I'm thinking small caps over tech now, I'm probably early. And because I'm early, uh, I'm hedging it a bit with a uh, short S&P. So short S&P, long Russell for a little while, and we'll see how that goes. Um, also, the and the debt ceiling has got to be in the back of everybody's minds. Um, I almost feel like a failure on the debt ceiling would be more detrimental for the S&P 500 than the Russell 2000, uh, mainly because of that international component of it. Uh, and that's that's how a lot of international investors will have access, get access to the U.S. is just by buying an S&P 500 portfolio or buying one of the ETFs. And if if you know other countries are looking at us and concerned about uh, what's going to happen with this debt ceiling stuff, I think the S&P 500 would come under more pressure than um, you know the small cap oriented Russell 2000, which nobody's been loading up on anyway. So, so, so you're thinking that you know, you're, I, did, I did not hear you say short NASDAQ. It sounded much more of NASDAQ slowing down, running out of steam. The sprint is over. Is that, is that kind of how you're feeling it? Yeah. And, and it really has been, uh, it really has been the performance for the NASDAQ has really been concentrated in only five or six stocks. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the NASDAQ continues to do well. But what may push the NASDAQ 100 higher is the other 95 stocks playing some catch up. And if, if that's what pushes the NASDAQ 100 higher, again, the better, you know, the, the better exposure to small caps uh, or small to mid caps is going to be the Russell 2000 over, um, you know, the, definitely the NASDAQ 100. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's the result. So I'm pointing out is, is the, the overlap that you're talking about here is you know, when you talk about NASDAQ and it's being driven uh, by a few very large companies and obviously the SPX is large companies. And so we've got 
multiple forces moving here. And, it, and it's sometimes it's it's easy to think of the NASDAQ as being one thing and the S&P 500 as being a totally different thing and the Russell's being, 2000 being a totally different thing. But there's overlapping characteristics that they have. Oh, in common, yeah. Right? No, absolutely. And so as you, when you're saying, I think that when you're saying the NASDAQ slowing down, you're basically saying, I think that these uh, the, the 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 mega caps that are driving the Nasdaq, we think maybe you think maybe they're running out of some steam, but yet there's still plenty of other companies that could that could catch up. And by the way, those are small cap, so it's kind of your your um, shift more towards the smalls that have been, been that have been behind. And you know, the Nasdaq is probably isn't not necessarily um, falling or anything like that, um, but just being driven a market that's driven more by small caps, mid caps than it is by large caps is kind of what your, your, your overarching thesis. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that, that's correct. And then I'm, what I'm trying to do, I, I don't multitask particularly well. Um, you know, we've got that FANG ETF. Right. Uh, I wonder how it has done relative to <laughs> the NASDAQ. And, you know, if you really wanted to stick within that space, could you short the FANG stocks and go long the rest of the NASDAQ stocks or something along those lines? That is unprepared of me thinking out loud. So that might make no sense whatsoever. <laughs> it, might be, it might be something worth looking at is where, you know. Um, it, may, it makes sense. Yeah, but here, here's the other, the other side of the coin. Um, just, uh, just to throw you throw you this is, yeah, the, the, the summer has at least recently not been the best time for, for the Russell. You know, that old sell in May and go away thing. Yeah. Uh, it has not worked for the S and P 500. It has not worked for the NASDAQ 100. It has worked for the Russell 2000. Uh, just going back and, and looking at the three indexes. So summertime, you know, it used to be summertime, but, you know, the sell in May and go away and come back, you know, about Labor Day or so. Uh, the idea behind all of that was people are on vacation, people aren't really putting new money to work, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, you see, and we've seen underperformance of the Russell 2000 during the summer. Uh, that's why when I said long the Russell 2000 short uh, the S&P 500 and, and being long the Russell 2000, I might be a bit early. Um, that, that's, that's why I think I might be a bit early because summer's not ever has not been really great for small cap stocks. Uh, but then again, uh, you know, most summers, uh, the S&P, we don't go into the summer with the S&P 500 outperforming by 8%. So, and, and, but, and I do feel like uh, if, uh, if inflation starts to spike up again, if people start to worry about the economy, anything global, you know, any global concerns pop up, that it will hit the S&P 500 more than the Russell 2000. And, and that's why I like pairing those two together for right now. Right. That makes sense. Um, you know, the when, and, and talking about some of this other signs that we think about, yeah, I know one of the things that you like to track is the one day straddle on the uh, SP 500 and the NASDAQ. And can you give us a, a, a very basic definition of a straddle before I, before we, before we dig deeper? Absolutely. Into this? Absolutely. So a straddle, uh, and, and I'll use a trader term here. Uh, you buy the at the money call and the at the money put typically. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be like that. Uh, and what I mean by at the money is the option that has a strike price that is closest to where the underlying market is trading right now. 
And you can combine that call and put together the prices of those calls and puts to, to basically get a forecast as to the range of the market over the life of those options. And now that we have single day options, I can take you know the, the option pricing on Wednesday afternoon on the close, and I can tell you what the market's prediction is as far as a range of outcomes uh, the following day, because those options expire the following day on the close. So it, you know, we've, we've used VIX for a very long time to, to gauge how much risk is being discounted by the market, but VIX is a 30-day measure. Right. And th- with the introduction of options that expire every day and the adoption of you know, the, the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ index options, uh, which now the trading in options that expire in just a few days is over half of the volume in, for S&P 500 and NASDAQ 100 um, markets, which means there are a lot of market participants there, lots of liquidity, and you're, I think you're getting a good consensus mind of the market each day leading into uh, the following trading day. And we have seen you know, the day, the, the straddle on a Tuesday, the buying the pot, put and buying the call uh, that expires on a Wednesday afternoon, uh, when Wednesday is an FOMC announcement, we have seen the price of that widen out tremendously. And then, you know, if, if it weren't for the, the PCE number that comes out this coming Friday, if we were looking at a pre-holiday Friday, um, in fact, the, the, the cheapest straddle last year was the day before, um, you know, on, on Friday after Thanksgiving, we have a half trading day. Yeah. The cheapest straddles were, were on the Wednesday close before Thanksgiving for options that expired on Friday. Because nobody expects anything to happen. Yeah. So, so the, it, when we say a straddle, it's basically it is a nickname for a specific trade, and these uh, we we call them multi-legged op, uh, option trades. And so that basically means you're taking two different contracts and making one trade to where the different characteristics of both of them and trading them both at the same time, it gives you a trade that combines the characteristics and, and somewhat can be a canceling out way or, or an enhancing way. But by how these things combine, it tells you something about, again, the behavior of the market. How are we, do we expect a bigger move or a smaller move in the market? So in, in tracking this strategy, a, a straddle strategy, which is a combination of buying a put, um, a long straddle, buying a put and buying a call that are both at the money. In other words, where the market is right now, a bigger premium, a bigger spread is telling us that the market is expecting a bigger move or is it, is it positive or negative? Well, that's kind of the thing. It's, it's either one it's plus or minus this amount, this amount from the area that the, the, from the strike price, from the market price at the money. So depending on how wide this trade is, so when you're looking at this option, how wide that is, it's telling us how much the market is expected to move during that time. So that's why the, that, that, that's um, one answer of probably a thousand answers of how we can how we can answer the question of why do you look at the price of derivatives and not just derivatives, but how derivatives can be matched up with each other like this uh, like this one day straddle. Now, 
we'll push out of the technical stuff now and just say, hey, this is something we look at to determine you know, what, what's going on in the market. But the NDX or NASDAQ options, they, the, um, or vol, vol Q, uh, if you will, it's, it's, it's calculated different, right? Because the, the S, the, um, the VIX is out of the money, calculated as out of the money options, whereas the Vol Q has a bit, a bit different of a calculation, uh, being more at the money, right? Yep. That, that, that absolutely. So, um, you know, it, it, that seems like it could be a bit of a trap for someone who was trying to take a little bit of information and say, oh, I, how I try trade the SPX is how I trade the NASDAQ. That seems like it could be a bit of a trap. Am I right? You're right. I, I personally think that, uh, you know, that VolQ with the at the money implied volatility, you know, more of an at the money implied volatility measure, that's where a big portion of the volume is. Yeah, and because of that, because there's more liquidity uh, and more people, as, and if you're speculating on a short-term move, you're looking at the at the money options. If you're hedging against uh, a five or ten percent drop, then you're looking at the out of the money puts. And so there, I like to compare the VolQ, the Nasdaq Volatility Index, which is at the money, with the S and P 500 for two reasons. One, it's how much risk is being priced in the NASDAQ versus the S&P 500. But then the other measure is, um, you know, how much out of the, how much hedging is there is going on. And that shows up in VIX more than it shows up in VOLQ. And we know that the NASDAQ 100 is more volatile than the S&P 500 on a pricing basis. But there are actually instances where VIX is higher than VOLQ. And typically it's when there's pending concerns about the overall market um, or, you know, or we're just seeing, uh, it's typically if there's concerns about the future direction of the market because hedging transactions with out-of-the-money SPX puts are boosting VIX relative to VOLQ. And we've got VOLQ history going back to about 2014 or so about 25% of trading days, VOLQ would close lower than VIX. We haven't seen that in like a year and a half, but they there's only two pennies difference between the two as of Friday. And I think- that Why, is why a, does that matter? I think that is an indication that um, entities are starting to hedge just in case something goes wrong with the uh, debt ceiling talks that are going on. And you can also see it, in, and I'm, I'm going to keep it at a very high level here, but you can also see it when you look at the, the pricing of SPX options that expire right uh, just after that debt ceiling date of June 5th that they're talking about versus NASDAQ options uh, and versus farther dated options as well. Uh, you can you can see through some of the the you know derivative figures of the derivative pricing that uh, the market is starting to brace for for the debt ceiling and something going wrong there. Uh, not to a dramatic point yet. We've still got a couple of more weeks, but I uh, wouldn't be surprised if we see a bit more of that activity uh, this coming week, just because they didn't solve anything this weekend and said they won't solve anything till Joe gets back from Asia and has his nap. 
threw you threw you for a loop on the nap, didn't you? You did, oh. you did on that one. Well, you did on that one. we all need a nap when we come back from Asia. I yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think he I think he needs a nap after after breakfast. Um, <laughs> uh, so you know. I know that one one thing that you that came up that you mentioned to me in your conference was uh, someone had mentioned that they really thought that uh, even if this debt ceiling thing gets solved by the deadline and you know history has suggests it will, um, but just the apprehensive um, or fearful economic activity could push us into a recession um, anyway, even if it, if it's solved, that doesn't seem. It seems pretty fearful to me, given, especially given the given our track record of, of of pushing these things through in dramatic fashion at the last moment. Now, um, actually, yeah, the the, the feeling was uh, it, speaker spent fifteen minutes talking about how detrimental the uh, you know if, if if the debt ceiling thing gets hit and we don't solve it, how terrible it's going to be for the markets, and how it's it's going to be very terrible for the economy, even if they come to a, an agreement, because everybody's all apprehensive right now. Uh, first off, you, we're closer to this stuff than most people, so I, I, I you know I, I feel like if I go out to the mall this afternoon and I just you know randomly survey people and, and they don't run away out of fear, uh, and I say, are you concerned about the debt ceiling? I think half of them are going to think I'm asking about their personal credit card debt. Um, the and the other half may not even know, you know, have a clue as to what I'm talking about. I don't think the average consumer is worried about the debt ceiling right just yet, even if they keep hearing about it on the news, because uh, they don't know how it's going to how it might directly impact them. So I have a hard time, and since we're such a, a, a consumer-driven economy. I have a really hard time believing that um, you know if the uh, if the debt ceiling you know if we if the if they solve it that that's going to tip us into recession this summer and you know if they don't that that may even tip us into recession because if they don't they're going to scramble around and and cobble something together and get something done because the second it becomes a real problem uh, they're all going to go to D.C. stay up all night and fix it. Uh, we we saw that. Remember the the original TARP package that didn't pass. Yeah, yeah. They, they, I remember them showing the vote live on CNBC. It didn't pass, and the SM, or the the Dow is the one that I remember. You know, gave up six, seven, eight hundred points immediately. And lo and behold, the Congress saw how the markets were reacting to this. Uh, saw that as a, they're already a very unpopular entity, and they're making it worse. And they figured something out and fixed it. Uh, it, so even if we hit the debt ceiling, I, I, three, four days later, they're going to fix it. And, and it, I think it's just going to be a minor blip uh, relative to you know, what's going on in the overall economy. Uh, when pressed, the person that was talking about the debt ceiling said they only felt like there was a 10 percent chance that we'll make it to the deadline after talking about how horrible it would be. Talk about that's how economists can talk out of both sides of their mouth. Well, that, that too, but, uh, call me a pessimist, but I, I think that these these give people that have not been in the news enough, um, politicians, and by, by their own appraisal, not by mine, uh, <laughs> a chance to grandstand 
and make their appeals for the next election and the value that they're adding and make sure everybody knows whose team they're on and make sure everybody knows that the Republicans are evil and make sure everybody knows that the Democrats are evil, depending on which side you're coming from. And gives you a chance to get your name in the news. And the more we can draw this out, the more people can get their name in their news, the bigger the bigger the problem becomes. But I I don't think that anyone on either side really truly believes that we're not going to get this this done, but we need to build the drama to get our names in the news. The president was asked over in Asia if uh, it doesn't if nothing gets done, does he think people are going to blame him? And he said, absolutely not. This is not my fault. This is the Republicans. That's not a good look, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's not that that, that, you know, that's not part part. Basically, that's not leadership. Yeah. You know, at minimum, you should say, well, I'm the guy. I've got to do everything that I can. Uh, if I put forth, you know, the correct effort and, you know, you know, I don't think people will blame me. But immediately saying, no, it's not my fault. So it's other guy's fault without at least justifying it. Felt like that was a really bad look. Yeah, we'll just have to use one of the typical hot buttons we go we go to. I won't I won't say them, but. <laughs> Whenever, whenever something is not is not going, we're gonna we're gonna blame who knows what. I'll, I'll, the other side, yeah. Well, the not just side. the other side, but it, it it's it's become personal attacks right now. It's not yeah. it's not about policy. It's about you're a bad person. You're a bad yeah. person, and you don't. Republicans agree with are me. bad. I can't be friends with a Republican. Democrats are bad. I can't be friends with a Democrat. Um, exactly. You know, whatever. We're all we're all people. We all want the same stuff. I know. I I, I think yeah. that that's. I'm I'm all for judging people by the color of their jersey. That's how I, I think. That's how I think we should judge folks: <laughs> the color of their jersey. <laughs> You're one of those guys that doesn't even talk to people wearing Alabama stuff. <laughs> Only during football season. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so. I I ran into a uh, pretty interesting article I read this week and kind of, this is kind of changing pace a little bit here, but uh, kind of going into into the RIA world. Uh, But that was a piece by Mercer Capital called the devils and uh, the devil in the details with devils and details, something like that. And uh, I enjoyed it because first off it's in in my area and RIA is wealth management. And also it's something that came up a lot um, that I referred to frequently in my, in my class this past semester. So we talked a lot about M&A activity. In fact, I had uh, a friend of mine, Devin Farrow, who, um, who used to work at a different Mercer, Mercer advisors, but on the M&A team, um, I would never speak to my class. And, and, and the, the, the point of it, of, of it really is um, price versus of a deal versus uh, terms of a deal. And this particular article talked about CI Financial. They'd sold 20% uh, interest uh, in their business, the wealth management division, uh, via convertible preferred stake for a billion dollars. So, uh Yeah. And when that press release came out, uh, the stock that's tracking their, that's US, this U.S. tracking their stock basically uh, was up forty percent on the announcement on May eleventh. But then very quickly gave up all of those gains and is right back down to where it was to begin with. 
And so it comes down to the, you know, what's, what's the takeaway here. And it really comes down to the terms, right? Um, you know, it's, it's so easy for RIAs to see the published terms of multiples and, you know, you see the, you hear it quoted, well, most RIAs are doing, you know, get one to two, two and a half X, but then you also see these headlines of eight X, nine X, 10 X, and you know, who knows? And while, you know, while a lot of these, the small multiples are the overwhelming majority of actual practices, the ones that make the news are the big deals, the superstars, right? Uh, that's, it, but then people get these, um, this expectation built up in their mind about uh, what they can expect from a firm that has, uh, you know, margins that are 40%, not five, you know, uh, they have, um, you know, a lot over, I'll just, I can go on and on about all the differences, right? But the interesting thing that came out about this that I really appreciated was um, they talked about a few of the details of the deal. And so you see this sticker price that everyone loved, the market loved, and the stock price went up 40%. And then as the terms actually became revealed, it fell right back down to where it was at because these headline multiples um, don't really tell you anything about the terms. And so you can get a high multiple that has these terms that can be extremely dilutive, um, or they can put power in terms, they can, they can give the power away from the common shareholders to prefer shareholders, as it was in this case. Um, they can have clawbacks or things that must be hit. So it's saying, we're going to give you this sticker price multiple, we're going to give you this on paper, but not yet. And so the, the the skepticism really there is just because you see a price, what does that really tell you about how likely this is to be successful? And is that what I really want? Right? You you don't just it's not like you it's not like a simple transaction where you know I'm selling you my lawnmower and you give me two hundred dollars cash and you walk away with my lawnmower. Um, it, it's a it's something that's it's a relationship uh, that happens over time, and there are. Um, expectations from both sides about what will happen to actually get this price that we've agreed to. Um, and this can be dramatic and not just, not just a, a big firm like this, that's, that's publicly traded, but in, in small RIAs um, and, and folks that are, that are selling their practices and, and things like that. The, um, the headline is it can be dramatically different than what people actually see. And that's what's so problematic. I think for a lot of RIAs, is they see the headline and they don't see the terms. They see an article on one of the trade magazines or websites that say this was sold at X multiple, but they don't see all the things that went behind the curtain as far as clawbacks and, um, you know, um, this must actually happen in order to get this. And if you don't continue this growth pay, or if you don't do X, then it actually is going to come back down to this. Um, you know, and also, you know, you're, if there, if there's a, some, any sort of equity trade, you're not just seeing that, but it's not just that you're selling your firm, you're really buying a firm, right? You're trading, you're trading one risky investment for a diff, different risky investment. And hopefully that risky investment is something that, um, has a better chance of growing, or at least it's a higher multiple. Right. And that's kind of the appeal for a lot of folks is going from a low multiple, uh, business independent shop or something like that to a higher uh, multiple um, bigger shop. Yeah, and I mean you, you've always got to dig into the numbers on all of those things. And headline numbers, I mean, we know this from 
you know, we know this from when we get economic releases. We know this when we get from earnings releases and, and any other number. Uh, there's a lot more to things than the headline number. And there's, there's nothing I like better than one of my students coming in and they own a stock or own options on a stock. And the company has, you know, releases great earnings and then the stock goes down. Yeah. They're like, well, it, they beat their earnings. Blah, blah, blah. So, well, you know, there's a lot. It, it, it's a lot more than just a couple of numbers. Uh, if it were just a couple of numbers, uh, we probably wouldn't have so many people majoring in finance because they could just take the number that's given to them. They don't really have to understand it. Yeah. I haven't personally dealt with somebody coming in and buying out my company for billions of dollars yet. I hope it happens. But, you know, and then I can, you know, uh, make sure that the, uh, you know, that the headline number isn't something I'm going to receive in 2050. I'm not waiting until 2050 for anything. Yeah. And, and, and that doesn't mean that there's anything, you know, I, I would emphasize this. It doesn't mean that anything bad has happened or anything, you know, shifty or, or it's just that you don't see all the terms and, you know, this being public uh, company, obviously, obviously it's, it's different, but the stuff you're typically seeing published is you don't really know just how much that is, how much of that's cash, how much of it's recoverable, how much of it's equity um, and what other, what, what else is involved right in those, in those things. Um, so one of the, you know, getting into something kind of fun for a few minutes, Russell, you know, one of the conversations you and I had briefly uh, this week was about tipping. I, it, I, I <laughs> feel like I've seen so many articles and news stories lately about people kind of noticing that everyone's asking for a tip now. And I'm a tipper. I think everybody, I, mean, I guess everybody's a tipper, but I feel like I'm a generous tipper, but I will say, and this has come up, um, quite a bit in different conversations is I feel like I'm being asked for tips everywhere. And not only that, but they're given as the automatic option everywhere, even in a place where I have no contact with anyone whatsoever. It's someone cooking a food and it's going to be left over here for me to pick up. And I'm, it's a self-serve kiosk and it's asking me a default 20%, but I can adjust it down if I want. It, it's playing on your emotional, um, your, your psychology. You do not want to change that to no tip or 5% or 10% or whatever, but they'll start to get 20%. You can adjust upward or downward or something like that, even on a, uh, on a place where there's, there's no service. And this is, uh, this is an ethical and value and cultural issue all the way around. Do you have, do you have thoughts on the, on, on well, the new, new drive? I Tipping. I lived I lived off of tips forever, so I've been overly generous. That's uh, waiting tables, delivering pizza, all that kind of crap. That's that's really what got me through college. Um, so I've always been overly generous, and uh, my, my my wife learned a lesson from me on that one, and we've taught it to my daughters as well. Uh, I always tip a little, a couple extra dollars relative to what would be normal for the pizza guy. Here in Chicago, if it's, uh, you know, if we've got a snowstorm going and everybody's ordering pizza, it could take you an hour, two hours to get your pizza because those guys know I'm a good tipper. I, I seem to get my food very, it rarely takes a long time for my food to show up like that. So uh, there's a mutual benefit to me being generous there. Uh, but on the other side of it, uh, you, you got to do something to deserve some money. And I don't know if, um, you know, if it's, uh, an extension of entitlement or what that you just auto, yeah, you know, that, that, you know, you, you think you deserve something for just showing up. You know what I mean? Um, so I don't, 
you know, I, I, I run the sub stack and you can ask people to give you money on the sub stack if you want. I don't, I don't do that. I don't really, you know, although I'm, I feel like I'm doing fairly good work. I just like hearing people's feedback, et cetera, and, and using it to uh, get attention for some of the other things that I do. But somebody did just give me a tip on Substack. So, and I greatly appreciate that. Wonderful. I, well, I I'll, know. I'll take this opportunity to encourage folks to, to, to tip their. You know, don't tip, don't tip on my Substack. I, was, <laughs> I, I really, I, part of me was like, eh, okay, thank you. But for, for a moment, I almost gave it back. Uh, so I, I, but I, I understand what you're saying. It's like, there is just this expectation, um, and the handout all the time for, for doing very little. I, you know, and I understand earning it. I really do. But, um, and, and I, if, if I see somebody working their butt off it, when they're waiting tables or whatever, um, I'm, you know, I'm the automatic 30% tipper. I've never really liked the, or I've, I've, it's problematic to me, the idea of our, of how we tip, you know, and a lot of it's generational. And if you actually look at, um, I, I dug into this one day, I was really bored and just generationally, you know, like my dad's generation, like 10% was kind of the idea. Then by the time you get to kind of Gen X, it's more like 15. And by the time you get to millennial, it's 20. And now it's kind of, creeping up. And now you see these automatic tips of 20% on really not doing much of anything. Um, in fact, you're, you're doing a job, you're not even in, in service. And I think that's kind of what's rub where these articles I see are rubbing people the wrong way is I have no problem tipping 20% for a service and someone's waiting on me and stuff like this, but really just the transaction of someone behind a counter. And that's their job. Yeah, I I feel like I probably am the softy that uh, that tips anyway. I, not always on those things, but I typically will tip a couple of bucks. But I've always felt like that the, that the percentage um, issue was problematic to me because, you know, I used to go to this little hole-in-the-wall Mexican place, which we have some, a lot of great ones in Texas. Unfortunately, this this particular one, which was my favorite, it was a it was a little uh, little houses converted to a Mexican restaurant called Trace Casas, just three houses down from the corner, and uh, amazing. And the the, the friend the, the owner there was my friend for many years. And but the but this restaurant died of COVID. I like to say because COVID uh, shutdowns killed it, unfortunately. But amazing restaurant, and they were very economically priced to the point where it's. I'm going to come in and spend $11 and I'm going to, and, and the service was amazing. And you don't, and you don't want to tip a dollar. I'm not going to tip you a two bucks, you know, on this meal, you know, and, or you come in and just grab a couple of tacos, you know, and it's, the meal is $6. I'm like, I, I tip someone $6, you know, on a $25 meal recently or something like that. And I got no service whatsoever. And this place is great. I'm like, I want to give this place a hundred percent tip. You know, and and another place that makes me it, it, it it's these kind of things that makes it awkward for me because I want consistency in my head. And you go to a place and you spend fifty bucks and you don't see them a bit. You know, and um, my girlfriend is a lot is, is more thoughtful about this for me. She's like, "What did they do? What did they do?" I'm like, "You're right," but I feel bad not not tipping twenty percent on this fifty dollar meal, even though I literally saw them order it. And they came and gave me, I, I saw this, this guy twice. 
he greeted me and then he came to ask me if I was done with my check and that was it. Never saw him again, but I feel guilty not tipping 20%. No, I, I just, I, I, for a job well done, I'm all over it. You know, um, had some guys come and set up some stuff in my backyard and it was hot and they were sweaty and, you know, gave each of them 20 bucks for putting in a couple hours and going above and beyond and making my wife happy, which, you know, is very important. Um, but other, you know, otherwise, uh, you got to do something. I'm generous as it gets, but you got to do something. Yeah, I like one of the things I, I work from home uh, most of the time, as, as I believe you do a lot as well. And um, a, lot, a lot of times in the summer, I'll do a, um, a cooler in the front of my house for delivery folks. Put, oh, put nice. some in there and water and sometimes some drinks. And uh, in the spring, we just had a little snack box outside uh, with uh, little, awesome. little snacks and things like that, because those folks never get appreciated and they're, they're working for us hard all the time. And I, I don't want to say never get appreciated, but you know, I, I feel like we throw money at so many professions and these guys work so hard. Um, so anyway, just a, a thought for you guys, if you have a lot of, I think most of us have a lot of deliveries is ever so often a little cooler, or a little box of snacks can, uh, can go a long way. Uh, for for those folks and I, I like you I worked a lot of jobs I didn't do a lot of service jobs but I did a lot of jobs uh, in college and in high school and so I I really expect those are hustling and not just because they're they're young they're not necessarily young but I expect those that are out that are hustling and serving folks and you know you and I are both in a service industry and uh, you know uh, it, it is interesting that 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 um, where tips are going in, in the society. So I, I want to see some, some work done for it, but the inconsistency I think is what, what drives me crazy. Cause I have a, a need for things to feel consistent um, in my, in my tipping, in my tipping life and things that are being asked for, for tips are keeping it from being consistent for me. <laughs> so, and I, I, the other thing I always do is I'm, I'm funny. I, I round up, and then, like, if the if it's seventy nine cents, I, the final digits are twenty one cents, and it absolutely all the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I, I always have to have to add I, in that those cents. I, I like even yeah. numbers in my. Yeah, my, uh, my, my kid makes fun of me about that, and uh, then we uh, we met one of my really good friends for uh, uh, basically a happy hour on Wall Street. Even though my oldest is only eighteen, and um, he did the exact same thing when she when he paid, and she she just was like, "I, I guess you're not the only one." <laughs> So this uh, this coming week, uh, Russell, uh, we've got a short week. Um, that's uh, that could that could impact, well, uh, I guess, impact liquidity uh, towards the end of the week if people are people are knocking off. People love to play earnings with options, but the liquidity could be a little little difficult. And the VIX is a little different going into the three day weekend. What are your what are your final thoughts on trading this week and and the VIX and going to the long route weekend? Well, uh, we get that PCE number on Friday, and I wouldn't be surprised if the reaction is uh, a little bit more volatile than than it would normally be, just because not a lot of people are going to be in the office on Friday. It's the it's before Memorial Day weekend, so lack of liquidity may come in there and um, impact the reaction. Uh, the reaction has been more muted over the past few months than it has. Uh, uh, going back into like the third and fourth quarter of last year. So, you know, I, I also wonder, since we've got a muted reaction lately, if the 
straddles are going to be priced for a pretty muted react for, for a narrower reaction than normal. So I think maybe it might be a chance to buy a straddle, but we'll see how, how things work on Friday. And then just, I always like to do a little PSA on VIX before three day weekends. VIX is calculated using calendar days. And because of that, when we have three days off in a row, uh, even when we have two days off in a row, there's a little bit of a headwind, but it is accentuated on uh, pre three, pre three-day weekend Fridays or Thursdays if we're off Friday. So if the S&P 500 is up and, and you know, or I'm sorry, if the S&P 500 is down and, um, you know, and VIX is, uh, you know, down even more than you thought it should be, uh, it might be that headwind more than, and, and what I like to do is, I always do this, but even more so before a three-day weekend, pay attention to the front month future. Because that future doesn't, the the future traders know, and they uh, the pricing has already been adjusted for for the three day weekend. Uh, it's not nearly as sensitive to it as the index. So if you try, if you use VIX as a read when you're trading throughout the day, uh, make sure you have the June future on your screen. Well, that's uh, that that PCE number, which of course means uh, personal consumption expenditures. It is a measure of inflation. That's why it's coming into to focus right now, and that and that new data comes out this Friday, which is uh, a day that the market is closed. So, no, the market's closed on Monday. Sorry, Monday. No, sorry, yeah. Monday, Monday. But 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 the, 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 the it being closed on Monday can can it's it's up. it's on a it's. It's on a day that you're not going to have as much liquidity yeah. as you normally do, yeah. which may result in more of an outlier move. Yeah, and pulls people out of the office on Friday early as well, so we can we can reduce the liquidity. But, but well, hey, big uh, interesting week ahead, and uh, thank you again today, Russell. Thank you everyone for tuning in. And uh, as a reminder, thank you. Uh, for, first of all, thank you for tuning in. And if you don't mind, give us a, give us a like, give us a follow. Uh, review it. We really appreciate reviews both on Apple um, uh, podcast uh, or Spotify, um, YouTube, wherever you're listening to us. We were, they, these reviews really help us. We obviously we want to grow. Uh, but yeah, send these to your friends and we thank you so much for being a part of this and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.